Happy New Year, everyone. We made it to 2021. And while I am not about to make any sweeping proclamations about what's awaiting us over the next 12 months, I have to say that a fresh start always feels good. I missed you all during the little break from the show, and I am excited to get back into sharing new episodes with you. As you know, if you're a longtime listener of the show, we typically feature women as guests. But by popular demand, I am bringing Manuary back for a third round. It's going to be a great month. This year begins with a conversation about Because of Winn-Dixie, a middle grade book written by Kate DiCamillo and published in 2000. It won a Newbery Honor in 2001, along with a slew of other awards. And five years later, it was adapted by Disney into a movie that my little sisters and I watched about a million times in the mid-aughts. I do my best not to talk about the movie too much in this episode, but I will admit it up front. It was a challenge. On episode 127, my guests and I talk about all of the feelings that Because of Winn-Dixie made our grown-up hearts feel. To sum it up, it made us love our pets and reflect on the people and places that raised us and think about where the boundaries of empathy might exist. We also discuss the moments of toxic masculinity and problematic language that we see in the book. Oh, and there are some moments reserved for some Dave Matthews band nostalgia too. Also back by popular demand is my guest today, Hunter McClendon, who you probably know from Shelf by Shelf. Hunter joined me on the first episode of 2020, what feels like a million years ago, so it looks like we've started a bit of a tradition. While we resisted the urge to make any big predictions about the year ahead, we all know how that turned out last year, we did have just as much fun this time around, and I always enjoy hearing what Hunter has to say. Hunter was raised by his granny in South Carolina and now lives in North Florida with his husband and their dog. Get more of this fantastic guest on Shelf by Shelf on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. He posts book reviews, book discussions, and personal updates on www.shelfbyshelf.com. Thanks to Hunter for helping us kick off another new year of the podcast. Since it is a new year, there's never been a better time to join the SSR family. Follow the show on social media at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook at the SSR Podcast and the SSR Podcast community. Admittedly, I show up most frequently on Instagram, but there are SSR updates across all platforms on a weekly basis. If you're loving what you're hearing, you can also use social media to spread the word about the podcast. Help me start 2021 on the right foot by taking a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and sharing it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag SSR pod so I can see it. Let's make this SSR family even bigger in the new year. A new year is also a fantastic time to get in on the Patreon fun. Patreon is a platform that allows independent creators like me to connect more directly with the fans of the content they make like this podcast for just a few dollars every month. You can support SSR, and I really appreciate it since I'm a one-woman show over here. There are fun extras in it for you, too. Patrons get exclusive access to rewards like bonus episodes, newsletters, voice notes, SSR swag, and more. Our first ever Patreon party is scheduled for this month, too, and I'm really psyched about it. I would love to have you there. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Big shout out to all of the Patreon sponsors tuning in to episode 127. If one of your New Year's resolutions is to read more books, you may be turning to audiobooks to help you make more of a dent in your TBR list. And if that's the case, you should totally check out Libro FM, which gives you the chance to support indie bookstores instead of giant companies when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from big corporations, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro FM. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I can't wait to hear about what you decide to listen to. And now, for the first time in 2021, let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Hunter. Welcome back to SSR. Hi, how are you? 
I'm great. I'm so happy you're back. You were requested again, of course, to be on for Manuary. This is the first episode of the new year. And Hunter and I were talking about this before we started recording, but Hunter was also my guest on the first episode of last year. And we had this whole moment where we were like, yay, 2020. Like, let's talk about how hopeful we are. So are we prepared to make any predictions about 2021? Um, no, like, honestly, if I were going to make one, I'd probably just like go for the reverse of what I wanted, because I feel like us being so like gung ho about 2020 probably set us up for failure. Yeah, I think that's probably true. So I'm just gonna say Happy New Year, everyone. I hope that you uh, are healthy and um, processing last year and preparing for whatever this new year brings. That's a good that sounds perfect. Yeah, I'm just happy to have Hunter back on the show. I'm happy to be back after a little bit of a break over the holidays. And I'm very happy to be starting the year with a little book called Because of Winn-Dixie, written by Kate DiCamillo, written in 2000. It was her first book, and it won the Newbery Honor. Hunter, tell me why you chose this book to discuss on today's episode. I don't know why, but I guess this book, like, first of all, my mom was around a lot when I was a child. So I don't know why I felt such a kinship with this, but I was like, wow, I was like, Opal, like, well, because she could, everyone calls her Opal, right? Yeah. I know that her name's like Indy, Indy. India Opal Baloney. Yes, that's right. Thank you. But I don't know. I just, when I first, when I first read this, when I was in probably like fourth grade, I was like, this is it. This is me. I'm, I'm Opal. We're together. And I don't know. I was like, I want to, I want to revisit that feeling I got when I first read it. Well, I'm glad that I gave you the opportunity to do that. I love that you had this kinship with Opal. I don't think I ever read it when I was a kid. So I would have been 10 when the book came out. And I guess it like missed me. But we were big fans of the movie in my house. Have you ever seen the movie? Uh, Yeah, I actually love the movie. And I think it does a really good job. The adaptation does. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. So we, my sisters are like a couple of years younger than I am. And I think the movie came out in 2005. So I was like too old to really have like gone to see it. But my sisters really latched onto it. And we watched it all the time to the point where like, I think I had it mostly memorized. And then a couple of months ago, my husband and I one night, we like couldn't agree on what to watch as usual. And we were just scrolling through Disney Plus And I convinced him that we should watch because of Winn-Dixie. And he agreed because like, now that we have a dog, he's a dog guy, like he never really cared about dogs. But now we're both obsessed with Irv. And so he's like very into all things dogs. So we watched it and I was reminded of how great it was. I think this was a couple of weeks before you and I had talked and before you chose this book, but I was surprised in reading the book the first time for this episode, how much the movie mirrors the book. Like it's almost word for word in a lot of places. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is I think that, I think that a lot of times with adaptations, that they try to make it more of a family experience rather than like a children's book. And so they're trying to like incorporate more elements. But I think that with the book and with all of her other work too, that it's definitely, it's very mature, even though it's for children. And so I think that how she explores a lot of adult themes, I think it kind of helped with the translation already being more for like a full family rather than just children. Yeah. And Dave Matthews is in it, which was like such a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, and I think that's the first movie that Anna Sophia Roth was in. I think so too. And she's so cute in it. She's so precocious. And my husband is like, when we were in high school, especially, he was a huge Dave Matthews guy. Our first date was actually to a Dave Matthews concert. And, um, I didn't tell him that Dave was in it. And all of a sudden, like Dave Matthews shows up on screen. He's like, wait, are you serious? Like, why is Dave in a movie? Cause I don't think he's, maybe he was in like one other movie, but this was like a fluke at best. Also, just a little side note, I'm watching Community right now. And one of the leads, Jeff, he's, I guess that they're like, a, he's a fan of the Dave Matthews band or whatever. And so he, and, but they, he was like, if you're a real fan, you just call him Dave. Yeah. And so, Dave. <laughs> And I was like, okay. And like, I was like, I guess I'm not a real fan because I was like, I was like, I just always preferred like the full, it's fine. Yeah. It was like, oh, do you want to go to a Dave concert? Like, do you want to go see Dave? Like, that's definitely the first couple of years of our relationship. We went to see a few Dave shows. I guess it's like, I think <laughs> saying show is even cooler than saying concert. So if I really want to be cool, it's like, we went to a couple of Dave shows, but he's the coolest, I think, as uh, one of the stars of Because of Winn-Dixie. And I, I always say that I try to stay away from talking about the movie adaptations in these episodes because 
you know, we love to focus on the books, but it's hard for me because I feel like the movie of Because of Winn-Dixie is like, it's like embedded in my DNA at this point because I've seen it so many times. And I was thinking about the fact that the last episode you and I did together about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it was sort of the same thing. Yeah, it's so funny. You're right. I think that, you know, certain certain children's books, the films really do ingrain themselves so deeply into our, into the zeitgeist that you can't, you like, you want to like focus more on the text, but it's kind of hard to like ignore just how powerful the films are. Yeah, I agree. But we'll try. We'll try to, uh, we'll try to focus on the book. Although, like I said, they're so similar that I think we can't go wrong. A couple of other little fast facts. So we talked about how this book won the Newbery Honor. It also won the Mark Twain Award in 2003. In 2007, the U.S. National Education Association listed it as one of its teachers' top 100 books for children based on an online poll. And then in 2012, it ranked number 20 among all-time children's novels in a survey published by School Library Journal. And on that list, it was the first of three of Kate to Camillo's books. So it definitely has a lot of love. I found a lot of like, you know, very positive reviews of the book, which I'm sure I'll share over the course of our conversation. But I did find one quote from the author who said that she likes to think of the book as a hymn of praise to dogs, friendship and the South. Oh, I love that. I know. Well, and you, I was thinking you live in Florida, right? So and this book takes place in Florida. And I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, well, it's funny because so I yeah, I, I live in Florida. I grew up in South Georgia, which technically speaking, South Georgia and North Florida are like one and the same. Like, people yeah. don't really realize that until they come here. But like, I, it depending on where you're at, you, you can't even tell the difference. And the small town, especially like the church, the church situation, because it's in a whatchamacallit. It's like a mini mart. Yes. And so there are churches here who, who are actually like, in strip malls in little slots like that and so it's really funny because it's it, it is very like similar to like what it's like here I, I didn't know I wasn't sure if that was a real thing because I did think it worked really well in the story and then also in the movie of course but I it's kind of fun knowing that that's like a real thing there oh yeah and I also it's funny too because I think that I I don't want to say that I don't really feel like a lot of characters really conservative but I do feel like they have just an old-fashioned sensibility about them. And I think that really is a very Southern thing. And so I thought that was just, I just thought it was like a very honest representation of the people around this area generally. Maybe that's part of why you feel like you identified with Opal when you were a kid too. Like not necessarily that you had the same situation with your family, but just like you were growing up in like a similar kind of environment. Yeah, I think, yeah. I'm sure that's probably probably what it was because I think that well yeah because my granny actually my granny she used to teach Sunday school and so I guess I guess there were like parallels like more and more than I think about but especially also just like being I was such a ragamuffin and having like people kind of like look down on me for just being such a wild child I think that definitely was part of it. So let's talk about the first line of this book because I think it's just phenomenal. Um, the book opens, it says, my name is India Opal Bologna. And last summer, my daddy, the preacher sent me to the store for a box of macaroni and cheese, some white rice and two tomatoes. And I came back with a dog. It's just it's such a great first sentence. Yeah. Also, what kind of grocery list is that? I do need to know. <laughs> so what do we think he's making? I honestly don't like, maybe it's because I don't cook, but that just seemed like it seemed like somebody like went to the store because they didn't know like what to make. And I don't know, maybe I just don't know anything. I was thinking maybe some sort of like a weird like casserole with mac and cheese and rice. And like, I don't know. I think I'm being a little generous. Yeah. It, you know, honestly, you know what? It feels like a father who is still learning how to make meals for a family. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, mac and cheese and rice are really easy to make, but to, we need a vegetable, so let's get tomatoes, which I, I get. I appreciate that. I feel like it does say a lot about probably like where he's at in fatherhood. I, I don't know. I'm, I probably look way too deep into stuff like that, but I do think she probably was, when, when in writing it, thought like, how can I quickly get an understanding of like what where he's at in fatherhood maybe? No, I think that's true. I feel like everything that Kate DiCamillo does in this book is very intentional. Like every, there's not one word of this book that feels like it's not super thoughtful. 
everything means something. It's a pretty short book. Um, it's 180 pages, but with really wide margins and pretty big text. So it's it's a quick book. As an adult, I read it very fast, but I think even kids could probably read it fairly quickly, but everything is meaningful. So I think to your point, like I, I think that there probably is some thought behind that grocery list and like what it's supposed to symbolize about the preacher. Yeah, and I think, I do think it's really interesting because I think that the conversational nature of Dickmiller's writing, it's very, it lends itself to, to easy readability, but it's deceptively simple because she really is, she, she knows how to like pack a lot of it stuff into casual language. I think it's such great read aloud writing. Like I just, as I was reading it, I like wanted to hear it. Like I wished I, I could have read it to my dog, but that would have been weird. I wanted to hear it read out loud and I... I can see how this book would be really fun to read to kids, whether you're a parent or a teacher. It just feels like it's very lyrical. Like it's just very beautiful and sweet and thoughtful. So yeah, I think that there probably is a reason that he asked Opal to get macaroni and cheese, some white rice and two tomatoes. And of course she came back with the dog. So the whole scene of her in the Windexie with the dog, I might be projecting, but I did find that Winn-Dixie in this book reminds me a lot of my own dog in his like quirkiness. <laughs> and so I really enjoyed that about it. Cause like I could see Irv doing a lot of the things like Winn-Dixie sneezes when he's happy. And that's something that Irv started to do over the last couple of months. Like at first I thought there was something wrong with him because he was he just started like sneezing all the time. But then I realized he would only do it like if we were going for a walk, like especially if Matt and I were like taking him together and he got so excited and he would start sneezing or like when we would get to the park, he would start sneezing. So like that's a real thing. But I, I started picking up on all of these little details. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Irv. I'm just reading about my own dog in a book. No, and that's the thing too is that there's a really great understanding of animals have animals really do have like really distinct personalities yeah and when dixie you know i don't think I, like i think anyone who owns an animal knows that when dixie maybe isn't like yes yeah, she's special but is it is a she right he's a boy it's a boy just kidding when dixie people that's right i forget things easily it's fine. totally fine yeah i think that <laughs> i think when dixie is it's a special dog, but, like, I think anyone who owns an animal knows that, like, all animals, they all are, like, perfect for us. And, like, we all think that they're, like, the best of the rest, you know? Yeah, they have their own little quirks and personalities. No two dogs, cats, whatever, are the same. Um, I think she did a great job of showing that. And I do think, like, it's hard to know that if you haven't had a pet. But I do think some books about animals feel like they're almost ex exclusionary for people who haven't had animals. Like, it's hard to appreciate them. And I think that this book's sets or strikes a really good balance of like if you've had a pet you can appreciate it in one way but if you haven't like you're still going to get it and enjoy it and maybe like be more excited about the people relationships and I I don't know I read a book um recently called The Friend and it was about I don't know if you've read it but it's about a woman who inherits a great Dane from her friend who dies. And I was like crying about it because it's about like a dog relationship. And that felt to me like maybe if you haven't had a dog, you wouldn't get it as much. But I think that this book like kind of did both. Yeah. So actually, I loved The Friend. It was in my top 10 of 2018. And I agree about everything you said with that, too. And I think you're right. I think that um, I think because of Winn-Dixie, it's the kind of book where if you have an animal, then you totally get it. And if you don't have an animal, it makes you want an animal so you can get it like on a deeper level. So the other thing about Opal is that she's really lonely. She's the new girl in town. And we we get hints of that early on. She, and I, I can't help but like picture her in the movie, like driving around all by herself on her bike with her baseball cap on from her like old softball team. And when Dixie is the friend that she needs. And so she brings him home and he's like really nasty and dirty. And something that I noticed in the book versus the movie was that the preacher her dad was like way more happy to keep him in the book than he was in the movie in the movie it's like the source of conflict that like he doesn't really want to keep the dog but in the book he is like much more he, it's just easier for opal to convince him to let the dog stay which i would i liked that like i don't always love that trope of like oh no are we gonna get to keep the dog or is the dog gonna have to leave yeah no i think that I also think that like, you know, kid, kids are kids are much more judgy than adults can be sometimes as far as like towards other adult, like towards adults, like kids judge adults by, based on their actions. And I think that if the dad had been too mean in the book, they'd have been like, okay, well, he's a bad yeah. dad. We got to write him off. Like this is it, yeah. you know? 
he's shy, but he's not mean. I think in the movie, he's a little bit colder. Um, but in the book, she describes him as a turtle. Opal says, sometimes he reminded me of a turtle hiding inside its shell in there thinking about things and not ever sticking his head out into the world, which is such like a beautiful <sighs> description and heartbreaking. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's so funny, actually. Uh, to me, this has a very, not to like, not which I know that the book I'm about to like compare it to is, is a complicated book, but I think that To Kill a Mockingbird, this has some of that yeah. father-daughter relationship that I do think is is just like a generally, I think any, a lot of, I've, I'm not a daughter or a father, but I do love the relationships between fathers and daughters in books. And I think that especially it's like the Southern, that whole, all that stuff together just reminded me of that. Yeah, I think, um, I think that it's a really well-drawn father-daughter relationship. And we learn that the reason that uh, it is just Opal and her, her father, the preacher, um, it's because her mom left. She disappeared when Opal was really young, and she really doesn't know very much about her mom. And one of the things that she's really excited about having a dog is that she sort of wants to like have the dog on her side. So anytime she wants something from her dad, and she'll be like, oh, no, Winn-Dixie. Winn-Dixie, too, would like that. Um, ah, yes, like retweet from Winn-Dixie. He wants what I want. Um, so he, she decides that maybe with Winn-Dixie on her side, She's going to be able to get some more information about her mom. And so her father gives her 10 facts about her mother, which is a really beautiful scene. And I, I thought it was interesting that the book so explicitly refers to alcoholism. Um, one of the facts that the preacher shares with Opal about her mother is that she drank a lot and that it caused some conflict in their marriage. And so, you know, of course, we're meant to believe that that's probably why her mother left and the marriage didn't ultimately work out. But I, I was shocked, honestly, by how matter-of-factly the author presented this for young readers. Um, yeah, so I, it's so funny because I read this, and I, and then right, right after I read this, uh, finished Because of Winn-Dixie, I started Anna Kay. And it's funny because because of when Dixie talks a lot about alcoholism and then Anna Kay talks a lot about drug addiction. And like both of these books are not for adults, they're for like younger people. And I guess that I can tell that I'm getting at that point now where I'm like, like when I was like 10 and 16, like, like children and YA books, like they could talk about whatever and I wouldn't be phased. Now as an adult, I'm like, oh my gosh, are they allowed <laughs> to read this? Is this okay? Right. Ugh. Yeah, it's super weird to be in the position to feel like you are like making any sort of a call about that. I, I think it's, uh, I don't have any sort of like a judgment call about it, but I was shocked just because this, it's not even like, this is a book that feels to me like it's maybe for like eight to 10 year olds. Like it's a young middle grade vibe. Yeah, no, I, well, yeah, because I, I was nine. I think I was nine when I read it. And uh, and when I was nine, I literally thought nothing of it. I was like, oh, yeah, her mom, whatevs. But right. like, I get, I don't know, maybe it's just like when you, when you get older, I think you maybe understand the severity of it more. Yeah, that's true. And it, maybe that's part of like the beauty of it is that like if you if you show kids and you teach kids about these things early and you just expose them to the mere existence of them, then it doesn't have to be this. I don't know. I guess I, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine that like if you have a kid and you haven't ever addressed these kinds of matters with them, like you've never even like said these words like alcoholism or like addiction to your kid. And then all of a sudden they're like 12, 13, 14, 15, and you have to like sit them down, say the word to them for the first time, define what it is. That would feel much scarier. Whereas if they've at least seen the word and like picked up on some clues about it in books that they've read or movies that they've watched, then it's like a lot easier to build on that knowledge later on. Yeah, I think that when you I think when you shield children too much, they kind of get blindsided by the world. And that can almost cause more anxiety, I yeah. think, than just like letting them know like, hey, like, there are different people who have different experiences. And sometimes their lives are complicated. And I think that books like Because of Winn-Dixie also probably, I think probably do give kids, um, help them develop more empathy, I guess, towards the mm. people in their lives who who might be dealing with stuff that are adults, that they, that they don't fully understand it, but they're like, okay, well, maybe this person, I don't know. No, I think that's a good point. I think empathy is a big point of this book, a big theme of this book. And I'll jump ahead to, um, to the litmus lozenge, which comes up a bit later on in the story. And I think that, that the litmus lozenge is really about empathy. So listeners, if you haven't read the book in a while, the litmus lozenge is this candy um, that Miss Franny Locke from the library introduces to Opal and Winn-Dixie. And it's a candy that her uncle 
invented when he came back from the Civil War. And what Miss Franny Black tells her is that it's flavored with strawberry and root beer, but there's also a secret ingredient, which is sadness. And so when each of the people in town tastes the candy, it brings up different memories for them. And so Opal tries it first and she's a little confused and she has to kind of come to understand what that means. And then we get these scenes where like she basically is sharing a litmus lozenge with everybody that she knows. And it gives each of these people an opportunity to like share something hard that they've been through, which I thought was like a really smart way to do it. And even like people that she didn't really like, like this girl, Amanda Wilkinson, who has not been nice to her, like is really snobby. She realizes that, Amanda also like tastes sadness in the candy too, which means that like maybe her bad mood is about something that she's experienced that hasn't been easy for her. Yeah, that is, I that's the thing. I think that I still remember that moment whenever she like, she shared the candy with a girl she doesn't want, who like they had that conflict. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, wow, like if we ever, if we were ever able to have that kind of, if we were able to have more moments on guests like that with people who we have conflict with, like I wonder like how we, interact with them in the future I guess yeah I mean maybe we just need to invent a litmus lozenge or some other candy that's made with sadness in it and then this life would be so much easier well and also I also think that you know um I think we all have because don't they I think there's something about like you know the sense of smell is maybe the strongest memory Mm. And, and I think that maybe like smell and taste I think we probably all have like foods or drinks or something a candle maybe like some kind of scent that like really does just like bring us back to those moments and I think sometimes it's like and I, I think something actually I, I love in books in general is whenever somebody describes like something that they like actually Swan's Way by Marcel Proust it's literally one of the most famous things about memory because he eats a cookie and it's like bringing him back to his childhood and I guess in a way that's kind of what this did yeah I've never read Swan's Way should I be embarrassed about that isn't it really long uh, yeah, listen, it's part one of, it's part, like, it's one part of, like, a seven book thing. It's, like, all together, it's, like, over the whole series, which is all one book, is over 2,000 pages. Don't. It's too much. I only read the first one. It's overwhelming. But it's also good. But I wonder if, I wonder if Kate was inspired by Swan's Way at all in the whole memory thing. Let's just say that she was. Let's just say that she was inspired. But yeah, I mean, Opal does a lot of reflecting about these candies. She says, I lay there and thought how life was like a litmus lozenge, how the sweet and the sad were all mixed up together and how hard it was to separate them out. It was confusing. Uh, doesn't that just get you? Uh, see, I'm too emotional. This is my problem. I remember being like, I, my nose was like burning from like tears whenever I read it. I I had a lot of feelings reading this book. And I've talked about this on a few recent episodes. I think that I'm like not an emotional reader. I'm not an emotional like movie watcher. Like it, I don't really cry about content. But and maybe it's just like the wear and tear of 2020 as Hunter and I record this. We're still in mid-November. I know you all are listening in January, but we're still in the thick of it. We're on the verge of a very weird holiday season. It's all just very heavy. But I, I really like felt myself on the verge of tears a couple of times throughout this book. And I do think a lot of it was these reflections on like the friendship that you can build with a pet, which is something that I, uh, that I'm familiar with. I think a lot of it was the content about like being new to town, because as, as many listeners know, I moved um, in April, sort of in the middle of the pandemic, early in the pandemic now, I guess. Um, And so I really related to Opal on like feeling lonely and like not really being sure what your place is. And then it just comes down to the writing. Like Kate DeCamillo's writing is just so touching and so affecting. And she has these lines. I've, I've noted a bunch of them. So I'm sure I'll share a few more before this episode is over. But lines like that are just like so powerful. Yeah. In a way, it's so funny to me. This this does this to me is just as emotional as like Bridge, Bridge to Terabithia. Mm. But just in a way that's like not like I don't feel like I'm going to like like when I when I first read Bridget Terbithia, I was like, wow, I can't move. This one, it gave me like, because of when Dixie kind of is more of like a hopeful, like less like it's it's like it's emotional, but it's not like devastating, I guess. Yeah, it ends on a different kind of note, a happier note. Yeah. So we've talked about Miss Franny Block, who uh, shared her litmus lozenges with Opal and opened up this new world of empathy to her. But there are a few other friends that Opal makes throughout the course of the summer. She mostly makes friends with older people, at least in the first part of the book, um, which I thought was really interesting and like was something that I could relate to when I was a kid. I always wanted to hang out with grownups. 
And I think it's like, you know, a reference to the fact that Opal has an old soul. Um, but it also just shows like how awkward she is. Like she doesn't know how to interact easily with kids her own age. Yeah. And I also, it's so funny too, because when I was younger, and I think a lot of, a lot of kids in the South interact a lot with, or not a lot of kids, but a lot of like loners or like, or just kids who I, I don't know, are just a little bit different tend to stick around with like older folks. And I don't know if that happens as much outside of the South, at least not now, because a lot of people I talk to, I can't think they're trying to they often shield their kids from adults. Cause I think we're living in a world now where like it's getting sketchier and sketchier. That's so sad, but you're probably right. It is sad, but I do also like, you know, it's one of those things where I do wonder, I'm like, um, like, I, I don't, like, I don't know, like, if I would, I think I would let my children, but also I don't know, because I get so, like, freaked out because of all these parents talking about it, but I do think in the South, it still happens a lot. People still go to these, like, different houses and stuff. I literally, when I was seven years old, I used to, like, run to all the different businesses on the strip that my granny's shop was at, and I would just go and hang out and talk to everybody, and I think that that's what it reminded me of, was, like, how all of these people, and the, and the thing is, everyone is so curmudgeon you know, like, and, and in this book, I think that, I think that Opal's I think that her her loneliness and her eagerness to impress people and fit in, I think it's so genuine and so it comes from such a kind place that, you know, any adult can immediately register that and say, okay, like I have to open myself up to because of because of this young person. And I think that that's something that's, I think we don't see as much of that anymore of, of older people, I guess, especially now with the pandemic, like, you know, there's not the opportunity for like young people to like go visit old people and like, you know become fixtures of a community like you it sounds like you were a bit of a fixture of your community as opal is in this book i'll take that i love ooh, a fixture of the community like a chandelier <laughs> no i know I'm kidding. <laughs> starting 2021 as a fixture of the community things are really looking up <laughs> oh that's perfect so we have talked about miss franny block let's talk about otis next the dave matthews character dave as we call him mm-hmm. um so Opal meets Dave because he works at the pet store and she decides that once she knows that when Dixie is going to get to stay, she needs to get him a nice collar and a leash, which I can appreciate. I think it's a great idea. So she goes to Gertrude's Pets, which is the local pet store, to see what she can get. And she walks in and she finds that the nice leashes and collars are really expensive. And I thought it was really cute because she was talking about how like she was looking at each collar and each leash and then she finally settled on a combination that Win dixie liked like she was like he really likes that combo which i thought was very sweet because he goes everywhere with her and so the reason that she makes most of these friends is according to the title because of Win dixie because he sort of empowers her to go into all of these places and of course they're just this like power couple of charming of charm you know opal and Win dixie walk in like nobody can resist becoming their friend so she realizes that she can't afford this leash and collar combo for Win dixie and she decides that she wants to try to make a deal with otis who is working at the pet shop there's of course like a little bit of back and forth because there's he has a bird named gertrude who he says like has to get along with Win dixie if opal and Win dixie are going to be allowed to come work at the pet store but ultimately he agrees and Opal sort of like just sort of strong arms him into the situation. She's like, well, no, I'm coming. So like, I'll be here. I'll clean up for you. I'll sweep. I'll feed the animals. Um, and they develop their own friendship. What are your thoughts on Otis? Well, it's funny because I will say, I think that, I think children are, I think a lot of times it, it's the same way that they are with with their parents when they see that they might have an in, they just kind of like, they just, they just claim the space. Cause they're like, okay, like, you know, and I think that's kind of, that is what she's doing there. And it's funny because I think that I was actually, it's funny. I, I watched the movie a couple months ago and I remember thinking, cause he was, oh gosh, what was, he was arrested yep. for, for playing his, um, the story was really sad the way that they described it in the book. I don't think they really go into detail in the movie, but the story is basically that he was playing his guitar on the street And people were complaining that he was playing too loudly. And so they called the police and my gut, and they didn't say this outright, but he was talking about how like he didn't like being touched. I felt like maybe he was experiencing some like sensory issues. Perhaps he's on the spectrum. There were a lot of like details about him that were pointing to that. And so he like lashed out at the police officers and I think he maybe maybe hit one of them. And so they arrested him. That's right. Which I will, it's so interesting too, because I, I think you're right about, I, I think he probably is on the spectrum and it's I've actually been reading a lot about like neurodiverse characters in and representation and stuff and and like recently because because of that show community because there's a character named Abed who is 
like it's insinuated that he's like on the spectrum. And, and so I just think that's interesting, but I think you're right. And I think that that also probably one speaks to the ways that sometimes our system doesn't really cater to anyone who's not like neurotypical. Yeah. And also I think it probably, you know, I think sometimes children are, they don't really notice stuff like that as much, I don't think. And so I think that it might, there might have been like a, a sense of ease of like not feeling like you have to like, I don't know, just like perform in a way that feels like more acceptable. And so I, I think that's just, I really liked their relationship and I thought it was really, I thought it was portrayed in such a nuanced way. And which I think all the relationships were, but I just think that was such a delicately handled relationship because I think it could have easily come across as like a little bit creepy or a little bit weird. And I don't think it did at all. Yeah, I think it could have felt like Otis was creepy for being her friend, but I think it also could have easily strayed into the territory of her, of Opal almost like patronizing him a little bit, like condescending to him, because I think that that happens a lot in pop culture where um, I think you're right. Like we've seen this story a lot where a child is perhaps like more comfortable hanging around a neurodiverse character, a character who might be on the spectrum, for example, because they don't they're not looking for a difference. Like kids aren't looking for difference, especially like a perfectly sweet angel, like Opal is not looking to call somebody out for being different. But I think sometimes it can come off as like, I don't know, as if the kid is like heroic for hanging out with this adult who's different than other adults. And Opal's not like that. Like Otis is still clearly the adult, like between the two of them. Yeah, He still is like living his adult life. He's still making his own decisions. Opal is still the kid in their relationship. It felt like it struck a really healthy balance where both characters got to be themselves. They are both like age appropriate. They are both respectful mm-hmm. of the other and they both like brought out different parts of the other's personality. Yeah, and that's the thing too, is that I think just in general, Opal is, I think it's something that Kate does super well and she does it in all of her books too, I think is that there is, I think there's always gonna be like the childlike wisdom of like just simplicity, but I don't think that she ever creates, even Opal, like even though she does have like these like little quips that like are like, it's there's like this I don't know there's like a show about like like wise like little children or whatever but anyway while I think that she does she is wise in her own way like it doesn't make her out to be some higher being of some kind who just like has all this wisdom that she spouts out like she's she's still like a child and she has like the shortcutedness of a child in a lot of ways and I I liked I liked that about her and that she felt like a child yeah Something that I wanted to call out because it was problematic for me, and as you know, I like to call out things that are problematic, was that there is the use of the R word in this book. That's right. Which, you know, I think there's probably an argument to be made that maybe it it would stand in 2020 because as a reminder, this book came out in 2000. And so, I, I like I said, I think there's an argument to be made where like some people would say, well, maybe she would keep that in in 2020 because of the shock factor of like how cruel it is to use that word. And in this case, it's two young boys, the Dewberry boys who are like really annoying kids that live in town. They're calling Otis the R word multiple times. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in 2020, maybe the author or another author would use the R word to just like, I don't know, really show how like it's it's especially now it's shocking like that's not a word thankfully that people use anymore unfortunately in 2000 it was a word that was thrown about a bit more frequently but it's definitely I don't think I've read a book with that word in it in a very very long time and it was surprising to me so actually I was just talking to somebody about this the other day because a couple of a couple of books from Doubleday which I, I love Doubleday as a publisher but I've noticed that several other books like like the R word is there. Like recent ones? Yeah, even it, like in the past like five years, I've seen like three or four that have had it. And it doesn't really address it either. Actually, the most fun we ever had, which was a, a this like big, epic, multi-generational family saga. It was really big on, and, and, I, and I remember I, I liked it, but it did get a lot of criticism because it uses the word very like flippantly and it doesn't really address like any issue with it. And I especially think that I, I don't want to say I don't know if she would have used that now, but I think that maybe the handling of it might have been different as far as like how it's addressed. Just a little, because I do think that I I do have like qualms with people using it, anything, even if it is like for shock value. But I think that if you're going to do it, you have to, I don't want to like police people's like, you know, choices of language, but I think you have to be really careful with like understanding, especially for children's literature, that it's not enough for children to understand why that something is bad. They have to understand why it's bad and like, and why, why it's harmful. And I think that 
even though children like were aware, oh, that's a mean word that we shouldn't use. I don't think that it was really clear. And at least to me, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe other people would be, be able to be like, oh, it's very clear. But for me, when I was younger, like, I didn't know, I didn't know why. I knew the word was bad. My granny was like, we don't use that word. But I also knew that a lot of other people were using it. And I didn't understand, like, what exactly was wrong about it until much later. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's actually interesting that you bring up the most fun we ever had, because that was my favorite book of 2019. And I can't, now that you're mentioning it, I maybe I just blocked it out because I loved the book so much. And I was like, no, the R word isn't in here. Um, But I'll have to go back and see if I can find that. But yeah, it's just, it's not a book that we see around. And I think you're right. I think maybe what felt so bizarre in the handling of it, of it in this book is that the Dewberry Boys are never reprimanded. And I did want to talk a little bit more about the Dewberry Boys, actually, because I think sort of big picture, I had some problems with them, or at least maybe, if, again, this is, we like to look at books in the time in which they're written. So things are a lot different now than they were in 2000 when Kate DiCamillo wrote this book. But I do think that for me, Stevie and Dunlap Dewberry, they creeped me out in a lot of ways. I think that if the book were written today, the way that the adults talked about these boys probably would be different so stevie and dunlap are these like two boys that basically just like ride around town on their bikes tormenting everyone and they torment opal a lot they like will like ride behind her while she's riding her bike places and they'll yell mean names at her they use the r word to describe otis they accuse gloria dump who is another one of opal's adult friends of being a witch they don't behave well in church like they're just like poorly behaved children and when um this leads really nicely into our conversation about gloria dump actually because opal talks a lot to gloria about the dunlap boys or about the dewberry boys i get very dunlap feels like it should be his last name but dewberry is his last name they talk a lot about the dewberry boys and how opal is having a hard time like dealing with them And Gloria is like, they just have a weird way of making friends. And it reminds me a lot of the conversation that I think we as a culture, as a society, have been having more and more since the Me Too movement really picked up, where we're talking about, you know, I know that when I was growing up, especially for like young girls, there was this messaging that like, if boys were mean to you or teased you at school oh, it's because they have a crush on you. Like they like you, they want to be your friend. And they don't, that's just how they know how to do it. And that's what teachers would tell me. That's what my parents would tell me. That's what adults in my life would tell me. And to their credit, like that's what they had been told. And that's how they knew how to deal with it. But I think more and more, we as a culture are like trying to direct kids away from that being okay. Trying to like instruct little girls like, no, that's not okay. Not to be heteronormative about it. But I think like, this is the particular narrative that we're trying to shift and like trying to like direct young boys away from treating people that way. And so I think this book felt like it reinforced some of that for me, which I didn't love to the point that like Opal actually was asked to apologize to the boys at some point. Yeah, that really, it's so interesting. Yeah, because I think that when I, whenever I read books like this, I try to like, I try to like read in the moment and then like afterwards, like kind of be more critical after I kind of have everything, all of the pieces together, I guess. And while I was reading it, I did keep waiting. I get, I kept waiting for it to be addressed more than it was. And in case it was, some of it was, yeah, like you said, some of it was not addressed at all. I think that if there had been a character who was, who'd come from, who'd had experienced domestic abuse of any kind, I think that the conversation with Opal would have been much different because I, I, because I, at least from my, whenever I was younger, both my mom and my granny had had really like bad experiences with, with abusive people. And I think that that was the reason why they were like, there is not an excuse to be mean to other people like that. Like, like, especially like that whole, like, if you like someone, you know, that like they'd say, they'd be like, you respect people by being nice to them. But then I remember like even other boys, like other boys would like make fun of me because I remember like, because boys they're mean to girls they're also mean to each other like like there's a lot of like yeah. toxic masculinity that's like, fueled early yeah. on and i think and i even think that the, the dewberry boys like you know like they're still mean to each other too and i not that like i'm like they are meaner to her and they don't and they the reason why they don't they're mean to her i think is because they see her almost as like they value her less as a person because she's a girl like i yeah. don't wanna get too deep into it but i do think that but i also think that they're also mean to each other because they think that's how you show feelings is by your aggression in a way and I understand that they have like a complicated life, but like, you know, that's like, you can't always use that excuse to like, 
just to justify bad it's it's not going to justify bad behavior bad behavior it might explain bad behavior but it doesn't justify it yeah like gloria dump um made opal inviting the dewberry boys a condition of having their like end of summer party like Opal's all excited to throw a party with Gloria and to invite everybody in town. And Gloria is like standing firm on the fact that like Opal just doesn't understand the Dewberry boys. And if she took the time to get to know them, she would like them. And so she's like, you can't have a party at my house unless you invite them. And I think we had a conversation earlier about how this book, I think, teaches kids a lot about empathy, which I generally love. Like, I love that idea in principle. But I think there are some moments in this book where maybe it falls like on the wrong side of the line. And I think like being asked or forced to apologize to people who have continually been tormenting you and wrong to you and hateful to you when you really haven't done anything wrong that feels like it's not on the proper side of the line for me and then I think clearly like being forced to put yourself in close quarters with people who have tormented you just for the sake of empathy like that also falls on the wrong side like I'm all about like trying to find compassion for other people and learning about why they are the way they are. And I think there's always room to try to be empathetic, but I think like it just, and I I think a lot of it is about that toxic masculinity that you just mentioned. Like there's something about like this particular cocktail of like toxic masculinity and empathy that just didn't always sit right with me in this book. Well, yeah. And even then if, you know, to just thinking just generally about people's relationships to like the toxic relationships people either have with in this book with either um, like Opal's mother and father have like a clearly have like a lot of like complicated nature of their relationship and Gloria she was an alcoholic right yeah yes and 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 I think that's that is itself a toxic relationship and I think that I think that's it's complicated because it makes me wonder like because Opal's mom left Yes. Yes. And it makes me wonder, are we supposed to think that like, if she had stayed, that he should have stayed despite her kind of having like a lot of toxic behaviors? Like what, like, would he have forgiven her? Like, and just kept making excuses, even if it had like harmed um, Opal in some way? Like, yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. Hmm, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a good point. And then there's this whole like narrative about like Opal questioning whether or not her father like even tried to get her mother back, which maybe ties in a little bit to your question, which is like, well, maybe he didn't think that it was safe for her to come back if she was really having substance abuse issues. And like, look, and I hope, and I think we can believe because it's not on the page that like, maybe he tried to get her help. Um, Maybe he was like encouraging her to seek treatment. And that, of course, is like the proper course of events because we're talking about a disease here. But I think assuming he tried that and she rejected it and she left, then I can see how like Opal wondering why he like didn't try to get her to stay would be a frustrating line of discussion for him. Because like to your point, like maybe he didn't think that it it was wise for her to stay around. Yeah. And so I think that if we're going with like, which hopefully, like like you said, like hopefully that it was his mindset was that, you know, like he had like done everything up to the point that he could do and that it just didn't work. And so like the, the final answer was like, okay, to like create a healthier environment for my daughter, I have to go this path. But it also makes me wonder like what, I wonder, see, this is my problem. I have like all these, like, oh, I wonder if they later had a conversation about how like these Dewberry boys were like really nasty and how he's like, sometimes, you know, you can understand people and still like not, like not excuse their behavior and like say hey like we don't have to have a relationship because like we are not this is not a healthy relationship but I don't know like I wonder like what kind of conversations would have been had between them especially for him knowing what what it means to sometimes keep people out of your life just for the sake of your overall health I guess and safety yeah loving boundaries loving boundaries are a good thing yeah they're hard to set, but they are a good thing. So I did, before we start to close up, I did just want to read like one section at the end because we haven't really talked much about Winn-Dixie since the beginning. And this section just, I le- I need to talk about it. So at the, at the final party, Gloria and Opal do end up throwing this party and everybody's having a good time. Everybody shows up, but then there's a storm. And Winn-Dixie, as we learned earlier in the book, has a pathological fear of thunderstorms. And so he disappears in the rush of everybody trying to get inside. And so I, 
I'm sorry, I'm going to bore you with this. And I'm sorry for any page turning, but I just, I have to do it. So as Opal is looking for him, she says, and in my head, I started on a list of 10 things that I knew about Winn-Dixie, things I could write on big old posters and put up around the neighborhood, things that would help people look for him. Number one was that he had a pathological fear of thunderstorms. Number two was he liked to smile using all his teeth. Number three was he could run fast. Number four was that he snored. Number five was that he could catch mice without squishing them to death. Number six was he liked to meet people. Number seven was he liked to eat peanut butter. Number eight was he couldn't stand to be left alone. Number nine was he liked to sit on couches and sleep in beds. Number 10 was he didn't mind going to church. I kept on going over and over the list in my head. I memorized it the same way I had memorized the list of 10 things about my mama. I memorized it so if I didn't find him, I would have some part of him to hold on to. But at the same time, I thought of something I had never thought of before. And that was that a list of things couldn't even begin to show somebody the real Winn-Dixie, just like a list of 10 things couldn't ever get me to know my mama. And thinking about that made me cry even more. I literally want to cry right now. That is like so, oh. It makes me want to go make a list of 10 things about Irv. Right? Yeah. But the good news, everybody, is that we find Winn-Dixie. It's okay. And it's a happy ending. And I thought that the ending was really sweet. This idea of like all of these unique characters in the small town coming together and, and finding understanding for each other. Although I think, you know, Hunter and I already discussed the fact that I don't know that we all needed to find understanding for each other there. We could have created some boundaries, but I think for a children's book written in 2000, it has a very appropriate ending. I'd love to know Hunter, you know what I'm going to ask. Do you think that your recent reading of Because of Winn-Dixie has held up to your memory of it from your childhood or has it disappointed you in some way? I think, I think despite my, I think despite like the caveats I have, it still holds up for me. Yeah, I think so too. I'm actually thrilled that this is the first book um, of the year on the show. Although I think it will be, it's like kind of a hard act to follow for me because I so enjoyed reading it, but I loved it. And again, this was my first time reading the book and I so enjoyed it. And I, this is a book that I think I'd recommend to like any kid in my life. I enjoyed it a lot. So it was a great way to start 2021 on the podcast. I don't know what's happening out in the world, but at least on the podcast, things are going great so far. Other than because of Winn-Dixie Hunter, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our SSR family? Okay. I'm about to finish Anna Kay by Jenny Lee. And I love that. And I am halfway through the short story collection, The Office of Historical Corrections by Danielle Evans, and it is perfect. Oh, well, I, I actually just interviewed Jenny Lee, the author of Anna Kay, for the show. And as um, as I'm talking to you, her episode is actually about to drop. So she was the last week of New Reads November. By now, listeners will have heard from her. We talked about You Should See Me in a Crown. She's so great. And um, I'm hoping to read Anna Kay next week. You liked it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. I can't wait to listen. I know. Well, now, like when people are listening, it'll be like a, you are talking to yourself from the past and you will have listened to her, hopefully. But in any case, Hunter, thank you so much for being our kickoff episode for another new year here on SSR. Listeners, if you are not already following Hunter at Shelf by Shelf, please, like, what are you waiting for? He's the best. I always love talking to you, Hunter. I really appreciate your time. And I guess I'll see you back here for like the first episode of 2022. That sounds perfect. Great. I'll see you then. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.